Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. This week, it's the summer reading portion of our show and a conversation about a baseball player that brings a smile to your face simply by hearing his name, Yogi Berra. John Pesa has written the comprehensive biography, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, on sale now and published by Little Brown and Company. With Father's Day around the corner, it's a fabulous gift idea. Yogi Berra lived a classic American success story, the son of Italian immigrants, a U.S. soldier in World War II who fought on the shores of the D-Day invasion, who went on to join America's most famous sports team, who became one of the best players in the history of the sport, who then became one of the greatest ambassadors of the sport, who then became one of the top crossover pop culture figures in American history. Yogi Berra's Yankees career is only part of his story. The whole story is told in this new book, and we discuss it now. Here is my conversation with the author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, John Pessa. So, John, the first question I want to ask you is how much of this book was in your mind, and how much did you start before Yogi passed in 2015, and how much of it kind of started rolling out after the fact of wanting to tell the story after his life? Well, I'll tell you, he was, I heard a lot about Yogi from my father. He was my father's uh, favorite player. My father was a Yankee fan, which so, you know, I obviously then became a Yankee fan. I saw Yogi starting in 1960. So he's a good um, role-playing outfielder at that point. And my father had always told me, about, you know, what a dynamic player he was and what a great hitter he was and what a great fielding catcher he was. And I didn't see that. So, you know, going in, I knew about it. I didn't know just how good he was and, and how much he dominated um, the, the game. I mean, he was the best player on the best team in baseball history. You know, the one that won five straight between 49 and 53. So a lot of this, you know, I, a lot of it, I started as a solid Yankee fan. I knew a lot about him, and, and I was just amazed how much I didn't know about him. So how much 
cooperation did you get from the family and how much access did you really have to his contemporaries? Because, I mean, Yogi outlived most of them. So uh, where was the bulk of this put together for you? Well, the, the, the family started out um, wanting to cooperate, and uh, I know Lindsay Bear for a long time, so we were talking. Um, after Yogi passed, they, they were decided, you know, deciding what to do with the estate, and they just kind of kept to themselves during that period. Um, I, you know, there are people like Bobby Richardson and Bobby Brown and Eddie Robinson um, and Ralph Terry and Al Downing. There were a lot of people still around that either played with him or uh, played for him. Gidry being also, you know, incredibly uh, helpful uh, with, with the last few years, you know, last couple of decades of his life. And uh, so a lot of it was uh, players, um, uh, um, the sister, you know, Carmen's sister, Bonnie Morse, who lives in St. Louis, was a terrific resource. Mm. You know, she obviously knew Yogi from the time um, he met Carmen and that marriage lasted 65 years. So there were, you know, more than enough people who could really give me a good feeling about what Yogi was like, yourself included. You know, John, uh, one of the things I always found kind of fascinating being around him and watching current day players react to him when he would walk through the clubhouse is they'd see this tiny old man dotter along through the clubhouse and we'd all have to remind everybody that he was one of the greatest players of all time. You know, this was not some big body Adonis. This was just a little old man. And even if you look back at his playing record, I'm not sure how much you can appreciate it. But just in this one stretch, you mentioned the World Series championships from 49 to 53, uh, five in a row. But if you look at a seven-year period from 1950 to 1956, Yogi won the MVP three times. He finished second two other times, plus a third and a fourth. So he is literally one of the four best players in the entire sport for a seven-year period. I think that's still hard for people to recognize. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things, I, you're completely right. I think Yogi has such an outsized persona. I mean, he, you know, his career tracks television. So this is a guy who is as well-known um, as anyone in, in, in America. And, you know, he is funny. You know, he came up with some funny lines. The press, you know, had a field day with that. So there was, you know, almost, you know, there were two yogis, the yogi that the press created and then the real Yogi Berra. Yeah. Um, so I think that that, that kind of um, overshadowed his career. But you're right. I mean, you look at the numbers. I mean, he sets the record for home runs for catchers twice during this period. He, you know, people think that it goes from DiMaggio to Mantle. And actually, it goes from DiMaggio in the last, you know, three years of DiMaggio's career. He's hurt for half a season. He has one good season. Yogi's season was even better. And then his last season, he hit 263. I mean, Mickey Mantle from 51 to 55 is trying not to strike out most of the time. I mean, the guy that, that is the dominant player and the best player on that, on those teams during that stretch is Yogi Berra. And, and you're right. I don't think people, when they look at him, and I remember the first time I saw him in the locker room. <laughs> and, and it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at him going, wait a minute, this is the guy that 
you know, hit all those home runs and batted, you know, and never struck out and was one, you know, one of the best clutch hitters of all time. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when he was at his peak, he was, you know, on his tiptoes, 5'8", but he was 180 pounds of muscle. And the guy played, he averaged 141 games a year yeah. catching. He, he caught 20 doubleheaders every year. He caught back-to-back doubleheaders in September and, and, uh, and, and in August. Um, you know, and Casey Stengel, you know, someone, you know, once asked Casey, why are you playing Yogi so much? Especially when there was talent behind him. And he said, when I play Mr. Barrett catcher, we win World Series. And, <laughs> Good answer. And, and it was true. And yeah, I don't think most people, you know, when they look at him and think of him, think of him like that. Like he's like, he is one of the best hitters in the game for seven, eight years. And that's a career. Yeah, and I think one of the things that comes across uh, reading this book, John, is that it's a classic American success story, too, because Yogi is the son of immigrants. Um, He is uh, the subject of some scorn because of his Italian heritage growing up, coming up through the minors. He is not one of these can't miss prospects. One of these, he's not a Joe DiMaggio. He's actually the anti DiMaggio in a lot of ways. Uh, Branch Rickey, one of the greatest talent evaluators of all time passed on him said he wasn't going to make it and then he ends up with the most successful team as one of the best players as we've just outlined and goes on to this charmed afterlife as just this uh, cross-cultural hero it is really a, a an american dream type of story that that you come across yeah, I mean it's a classic. That is that is the classic American dream story. I mean, he grows up poor during the Depression, you know, working poor. Um, he lives on the hill in St. Louis, um, you know, all Italian uh, neighborhood. Um, you know, barely gets through eighth grade. Uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, Branch Rickey changes history. Decides, you know, that Joe Garagiola you know, Yogi's best friend from the time they were four and five years old living across the street from each other. Um, he thinks Gary Joller is the, is the better prospect, you know, won't give Yogi $500 uh, bonus. And that, you know, that ends up changing history. Ends up, uh, you know, the St. Louis Browns in their infinite wisdom think, well, if Branch Rickey doesn't think he's uh, a major league, either do we. And they offer him, a, yeah, you can come here, but we're not going to give you any money contract with Jogi turned down. He could have ended up being, you know, in his prime playing for the Baltimore Orioles, which is who the, who the St. Louis Browns become. Uh, you know, the, the one of the things that really did surprise me was, how much of the discrimination against Italians um, that Yogi faced um, uh, and had to overcome, and, and how much abuse that he got for you know he was captain of the old ugly team, he was called the ape you know by by his manager as well as opposing players and and, and the fans. People would throw bananas on the field and and hang from the top of of, of dugouts you know. Um, scratching their other arm, you know, imitating a, a monkey. I mean, these are things that you don't think that Yogi had to uh, endure. And this lasted, you know, the, the, the questions about his supposed lack of intelligence lasted right into the 80s as, you know, once again it became into question when he managed the Yankees. Of course, you got to wonder why someone would want to manage the Yankees under George Steinberg in those years yeah. when, you know, he was firing two and three managers. But he ends up doing a great job with them, and then gets fired, you know, 16 games in, 
and and doesn't go to Yankee Stadium for 14 years, which he told Gidry, who you know how close they were at the at the in the last 10 years of Yogi's life, who told Gidry that those were the worst years of his life. Mm. You know those those 14 years when he when when he wouldn't come to Yankee Stadium because of the way Steinbrenner fired him, and then he comes back and. You know, he is as he is. I think the most beloved of all Yankees. I mean, DiMaggio, you're astonished by Mantle, you're astonished by, and, and every baby boomer wanted to be. You know, in the New York area, wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Um, but this is a guy that, from the beginning, and Bucky Harris, his manager in 1948, predicted he'd become the most beloved of all Yankees. You know, from there until the day he dies mm-hmm. in 2015. This is a guy that every Yankee fan just adored. You touched on something, John, that I want to get back to. Um, it wasn't just fans and opposing players who were riding him early on. Uh, the media, the press, it was the, the the print media at the time wasn't kind to him either. There are words in newspapers from 70 years ago that uh, you'd cringe if you saw them in print or describing anybody uh, in today's day and age. Right, and it, I think the things that hurt the worst were, were you know, the writers who he considered not friends, but certainly you know not not enemies, and they and he knew they liked him, and they would write like the Arthur Daly, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, columnist in the New York Times. The uh, the headline in his column about Yogi in the mid fifties is Nature Boy. Are you kidding? Hmm. I mean, you you know, if you could, that would never happen like that today, and. So, yeah, I mean, and I think he wrote two autobiographies, and in both they start the same way, talking about how there's this yogi who, you know, was too dumb to feel pressure, so he was always able to hit home runs in the clutch, and, and he was uh, a mascot for, um, for, uh, for Casey Stengel, and he was a combination of Joe Paluca and Little Abner. All those are his words. Hmm. That was the very first paragraph of his autobiography, ending with, I don't know who that yogi is. And then describing, you know, a, a an excellent baseball player, a good family man, was able to, you know, come from a poor background to to living in a nice in, a, in a, one of the nicer suburbs. Um, yeah, I think that that you know, I think it stuck with Yogi. You, you know, he never talked about it. Mm. You know that. Yeah. I mean, he would never talk about those things. It you know, it was like. He, he gave the impression that it rolled off his back, but, you know, you can tell just by reading his autobiography that um, it stuck with him. And I think that was one of the things that absolutely drove him to manage, something that his wife, Carmen, did not want him to do and tried to talk him out each time, talk him out of taking a manager's job. She loved him being a coach, but she just didn't want him to go through the kind of grief that he would go through as a manager. But I think it drove him that he wanted to prove that that uh, everybody was wrong, that he was really smart. And winning the World Series title in his mind would have done that. And he came so close twice. I mean, first manager to win uh, a pennant in, in, in the two different leagues. I mean, he really ended up being a, a very good manager. It went to Game 7 uh, in two stints as a manager in 64 and 73. Uh, and it's part of what you're talking about is part of the complexity of Yogi Berra that is, you know, it's it's used to describe what, you know, the sales pitch for your book on the back cover, but it's something that a lot of people don't really fully get. 
And it's this type of detail that you read about uh, in this book that leads you to believe he's more than just this this funny pitch man and the, the grandfatherly type that you're talking about. We mentioned that uh, uh, Branch Rickey's uh, inability to see what Yogi had. But there was another Hall of Famer that this detail I'd never heard before, and I actually double-checked with Mike Vaccaro, who I consider as great a historian of everything in this city as anybody else, and I said, had you heard this story before? And he said, no, first time. Uh, it's about Mel Ott, the great New York Giants Hall oh, of Famer, right, who right. tried to steal Yogi Berra away uh, because he saw it, and the Yankees finally kind of came to their senses here and put him in, in an untouchable category. But there was almost a series of events that led to Yogi Berra being a New York Giants legend. Yeah, that was really close. I mean, he, he comes back from the war, and he's playing for the... Uh, the, the naval base in New London, and, and actually, this is just so what Yogi faced. I mean, people didn't people took a look at him and didn't believe he was a baseball player. So here he comes in. He comes back from 13 months of, of fighting in, um, in in Europe, and he tells the the the, the, the manager who was a, a you know an ex major leaguer um, named Jimmy Gleason that, uh, you know, I, I want to play baseball and Gleason just takes a look at him and goes, you know, no way. And he actually quizzed him to see how much he knew about the Piedmont league, which was the only, you know, his yeah. first year in the minors before he went off to war. And of course, Yogi knew everybody knew all the answers. And then, then comes April and Yogi gets into a batting cage and Gleason goes, Oh my God. This guy, this kid is great. And they used to play uh, major league teams who would come through. Um, the Giants, the, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Dodgers would come through there. And Mel Ott sees uh, Yogi in, in the batting cage and goes, I, I, this, first of all, the, the, the left field, I think it was left field was 263 at the mm -hmm. polo grounds, which would make, you know, Yankee Stadium right field look like it's long in comparison. <laughs> and here's Yogi just hitting line drive after line drive after line drive into the stands. Um, and, and Ott sees that, you know, what he could become, goes to sit down with Larry McPhail, who's the, who's the president and, and general manager of the uh, Yankees, and offers $50,000. And which is a lot of money. In, yeah. This is in 1944, and um, and he says, um, "Yeah, I think we can make a deal." Then calls his chief of scouts, and he says, "Who is this Yogi Bauer? And the chief of scouts tells him, "This is one of the best players we have in the system." And and then he says, "All right, get him up here." And Yogi walks in, and and Michel takes one look at him and wonders, "Can I get that fifty thousand from Mel Ott?" Because he didn't think Yogi was a baseball player. Um, but that all changed when Yogi went to Newark and is one of the best players in the league. Um, and that's the same year that Jackie Robinson, 1946, plays in, in, um, in, in the International League. And that was a, a friendship that was born there and lasted all of his life. But, yeah, he almost became a giant. And, geez, how, how different history would be, huh? Yeah. And uh, I think another thing that is part of the detail that I love here is reading about Yogi's early life as a catcher. Um, because, listen, I've lived through covering guys like Jorge Posada and Gary Sanchez and right. all the things that they faced with the idea that they weren't as good as they could be behind the plate. And you hear whispers and, you know, you heard 
pitchers talk about how you know the backups are better receivers and they prefer throwing to these guys at different times. Certain pitchers appreciate that uh, or or felt that. Uh, this is something that followed Yogi Berra too. This is a three-time most valuable player and a guy we consider one of the greatest catchers of all time. But catching was a weakness for him early on. I didn't know quite to what degree until uh, reading the details here. Uh, pitchers didn't love throwing to him his first several years in the leagues, and it took uh, Casey Stengel's belief in him to really cement him in that position. You know, he, he didn't. I was, I was absolutely, um, I guess the best word, stunned when I found out just you know how poor of a catcher he was, and you know he didn't play catcher all that much. He, you know, when Ricky passes on him, he plays two years of American Legion ball, which pretty much had replaced high school ball as 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 where you're going to play. Um, in, in, as, as an amateur. And for, that's also where he gets the nickname Yogi from one of his teammates. And, uh, he, did, he doesn't play catcher his first year. He plays the outfield and second base. Second year, there's no catcher. So that's his first year really as a catcher. And then the next year that he's a catcher is in the minor leagues in, in, um, in, you know, class C ball. And that's it. And then he plays for, for Newark for um from May 10th to the to the end of the season and he comes up and he's you know he's very athletic he's quick as hell he's got all the tools but he has no idea what he's doing back there and he can't and you know because he he had so much trouble throwing and so much trouble framing pitchers that even you know, I mean calling a game was the furthest thing from from anyone's mind and the pitcher said we're calling the game and they did you know, when Casey Stengel comes in, and, you know, these are the days where catchers batted, you know, 230, knocked in 48 runs, um, and that was considered good because they could throw people out, they could call a game, and they could be a great defensive catcher. So if you had a great hitter at this position, you had a huge advantage. So he brings in Bill Dickey. Dickey sees that all of the problems are mechanical, um, challenges Yogi's uh, pride to, to become a great catcher. And works him two hours a day in spring training, uh, you know, after regular spring training. And he corrects, you know, one uh, mechanical problem after another and turns into a great defensive catcher. Quick as hell. Anything bunted in front of first base, he gobbles up. Um, he told him, you know, this is one of the reasons the pitchers hated to, to, to pitch to him. You know, when you're a catcher, you're supposed to grab the pitch and bring it in. So that you're trying to get the ball and make it into a strike, and Yogi would take would would stab at the ball. So he would take a strike and push it out of the strike zone, and the, and the pitcher would lose the strike. And you can imagine how much hmm. pitchers love that. Yeah. But once he cleared up, once he cleared up all of the mechanical problems, Dickie pre- predicts that this kid's going to be the best catcher in the game, and he was right. And one of the reasons is once all of those mechanical problems were cleared up, Yogi had like a computer for a mind. He just remembered everything. He could tell you, you know, how they got Al Kaline out four years ago in the seventh inning with a guy on second and what pitcher and what pitches we should throw to him. He just remembered everything. And, you know, so the pitchers go from not wanting to pitch to him to relying on every single pitch that Yogi pitched. The, you know, the greatest example of that is Don Larson. I sat down with him 
for uh, before an old timers game for a couple of hours, and we talked about that perfect game. And he said, you know, I threw ninety six pitches. Yogi called every one of them. I never shook them off. Wherever Yogi hit, you know, put the mid. That's where I hit. We were both in the zone. That perfect game was, you know, Yogi called that game, and he was a big part of why that game happened. Um, so you go from a guy who was going to be the right fielder after 1948 to the Yankees, yeah. um, and, and then Dickey changes all that and becomes a pitcher that every pitcher on the Yankees relies on, and he's one of the best catchers of all time. You know, you touched earlier on his managerial career and what he was able to do when Pennants in each league in 64, he leads the Yankees and uh, loses to uh, the Cardinals in Game 7 in 73. He leads the Mets there, loses to the A's in a Game 7. Uh, and his famous stint that we talked about with the Yankees again in the early 80s, early mid-80s, uh, that ended poorly. From, you know, we talked about how hard it was sometimes maybe to catch up to his contemporaries, but... Uh, there are a lot of players around who played under Yogi Berra, the manager. What kind of a manager did you find him to be? Well, first of all, he he was a winner, and you know that's something that people don't think about when they think about Yogi's managing career. I mean, he was just as much of a winner as he was as a manager as he was as a player. He his philosophy was he was a player's manager, and that that you know when he came up on the Yankees. You either knew how to play the game or they traded you away. And he expected that everybody knew what their job was and they would come in and try to do their job as well as they could do. Some days they would strike out. Some days they're going to, you know, get three hits. He looked at the season as a marathon, not a sprint, which really put him into contrast with, with, uh, with George Steinbrenner, who thought every game was a football game that you had to win, you know, 162 games. And, uh, you know, he, his patience, um, you know, you see what happened in 64 where they're kind of putting around in, in third place, you know, not looking like uh, the Yankee team that had won um, the pennant the previous uh, three years. And, uh, but by the end of the season, they end up in first place. You know, um, the same thing happens with the Mets in, you know, I mean, they, they finish what, 82 and 79, the worst record of any team that ever goes to the World Series. You know, that team was in, in, uh, in sixth place in August. And, uh, you know, he just, you know, keeps telling the players every day, don't worry, we'll get them tomorrow. And that's the kind of manager he was. And I think in, in the long run, players responded to that kind of, of treatment, they knew they didn't, you know, they knew the world wasn't going to end if they didn't you know, have a great day every day. Um, and I think a, a thing that, that really makes for a winning atmosphere is when, um, you know, the, the manager has confidence in you, there's no distractions, and obviously that was really tough under Steinbrenner. And, uh, you know, you just know that the season goes from, uh, from April until um, November, excuse me, October. And um, so I think the, the players liked playing for him, um, knew he was hands-off, and, uh, and he was a winner. John, I, I liked reading about the, uh, the 1964 season and what that, uh, you know, the kind of the aftermath of that, because here's Yogi Berra, who by the early 60s has established himself as one of the greatest players of all time. He's going to walk into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and he manages the Yankees, as we talked about, in 64. They lose to the Cardinals in Game 7. 
He gets fired after that. He's replaced by the manager of the Cardinals. But I thought more interesting than that, you know, he ends up moving over to the Mets um, with Casey Stengel still there and is a coach there for a while. But until Gil Hodges dies in the spring of 72, there is not another managing offer for him at all between 64 and 72. He it sounded like he finally found he got uh, what he wanted was another chance, but that there were no other offers or nothing else for him to to try to uh, go after in those years in between. That kind of surprised me a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the he he knows he's going to manage the the Yankees in in '63. They make a, a secret deal. Hap is going to move up. Yogi's going to become manager, and the big question mark was whether he'd be able to handle um, his friends, uh, Mickey Mantle and, and Whitey Ford specifically, uh, you know, who were known not not to follow curfew, and, and that was <laughs> tough for him. It's tough going from being people's friends to going to being people's managers. Yeah. Um, but he ends up having, you know, like I said, winning a pennant with a team that, you know, was really on the edge. I mean, yeah. injured, old, he loses Whitey Ford. Um, they have to, you know, they, they get, they, he, he convinces Ralph Howard to bring up Mel Starmoyer at the end of that season. Um, I mean, he, you know, you look at that season, you know, uh, detached from the emotions and, and what happened and you go, this guy did a great job. I mean, look, look at what he had to work with. And he goes to the seventh game of the World Series. In fact, Bobby Richardson's, um, wife told Yogi that he should go in to get a two-year contract because if Richardson had turned the double play like he should have in game four, <laughs> yeah. the Yankees win that game. Al Downing's pitching a one-hitter, and um, the Yankees are up you know, 3-1, and uh, they would have win that game, and they would have been up three games to one, and they would have won the World Series, uh, which, of course, little did Yogi know that the decision had already been made in, in, in uh, August to fire him. Um, so that would have been really interesting to see what, what ends up happening. But, you know, one of the things about Yogi is that he loved living in New Jersey. And he loved, you know, his house in, in Montclair. And he wanted the kids to stay in those schools. And he had a couple of other, there were a couple of other offers. The Braves were interested. The Orioles were interested. But, uh, Yogi was always going to stay in New York. You know, it was that, that was where he was going to stay. And he gets passed over twice for West Western, which, um, I think it was a favor to him because those Mets teams were awful. Sure. Um, and then Gil Hodges, who's recognized as one of the best managers in the game. And in fact, you know, Yogi goes in to see Hodges. I, I didn't know this. Uh, he goes in to see Hodges, who's a friend of his dating back from their, their days of playing against each other when Hodges was with the Dodgers and says, Hey, if you want a clean slate, um, I'll find another job or I'll just, I'll just retire. And, um, and Hodges says, No, I want you on my coaching staff. And, you know, when Hodges unfortunately dies, he gets a chance and he has, he has a, a really good run with the Mets. In fact, when he's fired, the, the Mets are in third place and he's in his five games over 500. Um, so, you know, I, I think he's a, uh, you know, he wanted to stay in New York. That's why he didn't go to other places. Uh, when he takes a job with Steinbrenner, um, and now he's in, you know, in his late fifties, um, that was just a tough, tough situation. George was, George was, um, just had a hair trigger and treated and just treated every manager, um, so poorly. And, um, you know, 
I was sorry, you know, in writing about that. I just felt so bad the way it ended for Yogi with, with the Yankees and, and leaving the way he did. Um, and I think, you know, Steinbrenner eventually understands his mistake and, and apologizes to him. And they end up being, you know, they end up being really close friends with George mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you detailed that up until uh, Steinbrenner's death in 2010. The thing that I found interesting was that this wasn't like an instantaneous reaction from Yogi Berra. When he's fired uh, early in the 85 season, he doesn't automatically say uh, that he's never going back and this and that. This is something that kind of brews for a little while, and it's it takes several months um, before he before he actually makes that reaction known that he's not going to go back um until so, you know so, some sort of uh, uh some sort of apology or whatever but it wasn't he was fired okay you know screw you george i'm never coming back this took a little while you know that that kind of gets lost in in the whole i mean there's so much to tell about yogi um it was hard to keep the book i mean i ended up having to cut six 60 pages out of a book that's, you know, 506 pages long. Um, but he, uh, you know, when he meets with reporters, first of all, uh, you know, I think most people know that the Yankee clubhouse just explodes. I mean, Don Bale starts throwing trash cans around. Don Mattingly is kicking things around. Everyone cursing out Steinbrenner. I mean, none of the players were happy about, about this move at all. And Yogi tells the writers, look, you know, um, you'll see me. Uh, Dale, his son, who had been traded on in the offseason to the Yankees from the Pirates, um, is playing. He goes, you know, I, I'll be, I'll be back. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be coming to see Dale play. And he goes home, and I think his wife said, uh, you know, are you kidding? What this guy just <laughs> did for you? You should never, you, know, you should never talk to this guy again. Uh, John McMullen, who's mm-hmm. uh, the owner of the Astros, had been a minority owner with the with the Yankees. And knew all about what life with George was like, you know. And I'm sure he, they just had a conversation that that ended with, "You go back um, anywhere near that guy, you're you're crazy." And I think Yogi finally comes to the realization that, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I, I don't I, I don't want to be around this person. And he misses some really big events. I mean, Manningly gets his number retired. They're very close. He he won't go. Tori invites him to, and they're very close uh, to give him a ring, at, you know, present the ring after one of the World Series, and and he doesn't do that. Phil Rizzuto, his best friend in in the whole world, um, is being honored for 50 years with the Yankees, uh, and he doesn't. And Yogi doesn't come to that. And Rizzuto tells the press that, listen, you know, he told me he wasn't going to do it, and I understand and I agree with his stance. And um, you know, really, a man of of of, of great principle, and uh, you know, it really took. And I was also surprised when um, you know when they made up. You know, Steinbrenner, you know, Susan Waldman of of, of mm-hmm. uh, then with WFAN convinces George to apologize, and when uh, and when her counterparts on, with the Yang, with the uh, Yogi Berra Museum, Rose Kelly. Um, and John Kelly, his friends, Dave Kaplan, who's running the museum, come to him with the offer. And uh, he just starts yelling that he's not going to do it. This is another trip from Steinbrenner. Oh, there's no way I trust that guy. And he goes up to the office where his kids, uh, Tim and Dale, are working in, in the family memorabilia business. And, and they tell him, look, 
the grandparents, the grandkids have never seen you and never seen the way the fans react to you. And, and don't you want that for them? And I got to tell you, I'm now a grandfather of a 22 <laughs> month old and that is the killer argument. Yeah. And that's what got Yogi to change his mind. And like we said, it, it ends up, it's, it's kind of like Casablanca. It ends up being a beautiful friendship. <laughs> John, what's the transition for Yogi from going from what we talked about earlier, this guy who was uh, really uh, had a lot of scorn from fans, from players, from media, and he ends up being this great commercial pitch man and crosses into pop culture. Um, is it simply that he become a great player and that he became kind of likable, or was there something else that triggered this little movement to where he becomes something other than a baseball player? He is crossing pop culture boundaries to the point where people who who know who he is have no idea he was a great baseball player. Right. In fact, you know, one of the things that, that's interesting, you, you say that, is uh, there's a conversation be, uh, um, at, at Ed Lucas's house. Ed Lucas is a, a blind sports writer in, mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and Yogi and Surizuru befriend him, and, and they're there. And Yogi's kind of complaining that, you know, the fans remember him as a, as a, as Yoo-Hoo, and Surizuru is saying the same thing, that fans remember me as the money store guy, cause, <laughs> you know, a commercial that he did for decades. And that they and they both say and they, you know a lot of fans remember Joe DiMaggio as Mr. Coffee instead yeah. of instead of the greatest one of the greatest if not the greatest players to ever play. But I think this starts in the fifties where Yogi. Um, I think the the shape of Yogi and the and 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 the the way he was portrayed, uh, fans identified with him. Um, there's a great story that. George Lois, who was, you know, a, a titan in the advertising business, um, uh, is selling cat food. Uh, and the Quaker Oats people say, the only thing we're going to tell you is that uh, women buy cat food. And he comes up with a commercial based on a, on a cat uh, having a workout and ends up talking to Yogi Berra. And uh, the people from Quaker Oats say, we told you, this is 1962, we told you that women buy, he goes, I guarantee you that women know, women in America know who Yogi Berra is. And he does a survey, 200 women, 180 of them say they know who Yogi Berra is, they know him well, and the biggest thing is that they trust and like him. And that's advertising gold. So Yogi, you know, through the years is is selling everything from camel cigarettes to Yoo-Hoo to... Um, uh, you know, the app, the app ends up with the Affleck duck and the Philharmonic and, yeah. and cat food and, and Miller. And he is just all over the place there. He's also on every television show. I mean, variety shows are the big thing in the fifties. And he's, and he's always waving to the crowd and talking to Ed Sullivan or Perry Como or Jackie Gleason or Phil Silvers. He ends up being, doing cameos in movies with, uh, Cary Grant and Doris Day in one and Marilyn Monroe in another. And he, he ends up being, this one really got me, um, he ends up being in the um, uh, General Hospital in 1962, mm-hmm. and he plays a brain surgeon. And they, <laughs> and they give him lines to speak. They, they weren't going to do it, but they gave him lines to speak. And, and when asked why they did that, they said, well, he had great hands. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, Yogi is, is virtually everywhere. Um, so I think... That, that just continues to build, um, after he's a, um, you know, after his career, because, uh, if you, if you are trusted by consumers and liked, 
um, every advertiser wants you to do their product. And that's what ends up happening. John, was there any dark side to him? I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of what he had to live with growing up. And it, it, it really reads like he internalized a lot of that. Uh, we've talked about his managerial career and how much he desperately wanted to be known as someone who was a smart person, a smart baseball man. And it sounds like just winning a World Series as a manager was something that he desperately wanted that he wasn't able to get despite everything else he was able to accomplish. But was there any other any other thing that comes across as a dark side for somebody who is just seen as this beloved figure and kind of a uh, likable guy? Yeah, you know, I think I think every um, athlete, every celebrity, but you know, every certainly every athlete struggles with um, how to raise kids and be a, a baseball player at the same time. I mean, Yogi's gone. From um, you know, from February until October, uh, barely sees his kids, um, and they you know they end up having um, some struggles, and especially Dale, we all know, ends up um, getting involved with cocaine in in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and that was a really tough thing for for him to deal with, um, and you know it ends up not only with Pittsburgh, but afterwards. Um, Dale gets caught up in drugs again, and, you know, Yogi and Carmen are real supportive, and then it happens a third time in the early 90s, and, you know, they call a family intervention, and Yogi has to sit there and tell his kids, hey, look, we love you, we're supporting you, but if this continues, you're no longer a part of the family. And, boy, as a parent, you've got kids, yeah. I've got kids as yeah. a parent, that's got to be one of the hardest um, conversations he had in his entire life. And so I'd say, you know, that part of his life, just like every celebrity who brings up kids um, in the shadow of, of, of what they do and the demands of their job, um, that was a struggle and that was, that was the tough part of his life. John, for the most part, this is a this is a fun read about a guy who we all consider just lovable and brings a smile to our face. Um, you know, I, I know this wasn't your intent, uh, because this was the publication date that was arranged a while back. But given the circumstances we are living in and the circumstances your book was released in, and I think it is a, a going to be a, a wonderful Father's Day idea for a lot of people, but given everything we're, we're in right now, does he appear to be the perfect guy to read about and whose story should be told? Well, I'll tell you, I think that people are right now, especially, you know, the people in where we live in the New York tri-state area, um, where 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 the epicenter of this pandemic, I think people are just looking for a something to feel good about because there's just not a lot, you know, with 40 million people um, unemployed, and uh, that that is the definition of yogi. I mean, like we were talking earlier, you know, yogi walked into the room and people in the room felt better. You know, and you sat and you talked to him and you just felt like, you know, that your day got better. Um, and I think that's the way, you know, you, you read about his story and, and it's a fascinating um, story that I couldn't get everything in. Um, it just makes you feel good. And I think, you know, who knew that, you know, when we when we planned the release date of, of April that we were going to be in the middle of pandemic. But uh, I, I have to say that um, I'm getting a lot of emails um, overall, 
you know, social media platform and this is my second book. And then, you know, the first book did well and uh, I never got the kind of reaction that I'm getting now. People just, people literally just thanking me for writing the story. So I think that that kind of answers your question that, you know, whether this is the, the right story for this kind of time. Um, never knew it was going to happen, but Yogi made people feel good. And I think people are looking to feel good these days. My thanks to John Pessa and the book Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask is available now, published by Little Brown and Company. Put this one on your summer reading list if you're a fan of biographies. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com or Apple Podcasts. Recent conversations have included Damon Oppenheimer, the Yankees vice president of amateur scouting, former Yankees manager and Hall of Famer Joe Torre, and the Emmy-winning director of Saturday Night Live, Don Roy King. Please make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Please stay safe and thank you all for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.